Welcome to the Tax Girl Podcast, your home for tax news, tax info, and tax policy. In each episode, I'll share conversations about taxes, money, and the choices that we make. I'm your host, Kelly phillips for Tax Girl. I'm a practicing tax attorney, and I work with taxpayers like you every day. There's a lot to talk about, so let's get started. Today, you can't turn on the television without finding a reality television show. But that wasn't always the case. In the 1990s and early 2000s, reality television as we know it today was still relatively new. And leading the pack was a CBS series called Survivor. The first season, Survivor Borneo, was initially broadcast on May 31st, 2000. The show dropped a group of strangers on an island where they had to find or create food, fire, and shelter and work together in teams. Along the way, they competed in challenges and were voted out by their fellow contestants until only one remained and won the $1 million prize. The first season became a rating success, and the show would go on to make Time Magazine's list of the 100 greatest television shows of all time and TV Guide's list of the 60 best series of all time. The winner of the first season and that million-dollar prize was Richard Hatch. But even as America was watching, so too was the IRS. Hatch was charged with tax evasion and eventually convicted for not paying taxes on his survivor prize. He was sentenced to 51 months in federal prison. He served just over three years before his release in 2009. By 2010, Hatch had not yet filed his tax returns and was eventually ordered back to jail. He left jail on supervised release in 2011, but reportedly failed to comply with the judge's orders to file and pay his tax obligations. Not surprisingly, I covered Hatch's trial and subsequent conviction with interest. It was, at the time, one of the biggest tax stories in the country. In 2012, after I posted a piece on Hatch's appearance in an ad for a tech service, Hatch called me out of the comments, advising that I didn't have all of the facts. I asked him to tell me what I was missing. He agreed to chat and we had a conversation. I've even traveled to Rhode Island to meet him in person. Full disclosure, before I met him, I had never seen an episode of Survivor. And I wondered whether his reputation as a villain had influenced both how he was treated by the IRS and by the press. Hatch told me there was no question that was true. So when I restarted my podcast, which included a focus on the IRS and stories in the press, I knew that I wanted to have him on the show. So Rich, thanks so much for agreeing to chat with me about your story. My pleasure. Can I straighten out something you said already? Absolutely. Please. (laughs) First thing. Sure. Yeah. First thing. So you said the IRS was watching while Survivor aired. They weren't. And in fact, the story begins with me contacting the IRS. It wasn't that they were watching and wondering what was going on or did this guy who won a million pay taxes. Mm -hmm. It was me saying, hey, we earned this money in Malaysia some tax must be due there. What do I owe you? That's what my accountant and I did. We reached out to them. So they weren't watching or wondering. There was nothing untoward. I thought I was unbelievably amazing in the show and was going (laughs) to come home, no surprise to you, and was going to come home to a hero's welcome, like the MVP of a football game when people couldn't believe how well I played this never before played game. Right, right. Surprise, surprise. Right. So that wasn't what happened. I do think, you know, when when we look back at kind of the way that reality TV show paints a lot of, of contestants, 
you were considered a villain. And I think that that became really hard to separate like your persona from your life. And I, you know, on some level, and you and I have talked about this, I think before, on some level, I think you kind of relished that a little bit in the beginning, right? Like it was kind of, it was kind of the thing, right? Well, I think the appearance of my going with it, relishing it, whatever words you want to say, mm-hmm. had to do with a choice about what do you do with this? Right. My expectation was here I was going to be lauded as this incredible player. How did he figure it out so soon? How did he play so well? Right. Oh my gosh, nobody else had a chance. And when the reality of prejudice and bigotry and homophobia hit me in the face, that I had never been exposed to before, believe it or not, been gay all my life, an atheist, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But once on television, it changed. And I was being bombarded with feelings and perceptions and inaccuracies that had never come my way before. And so even now, looking back, uh, I'm fascinated by how powerfully blatant was were the abuses that were mostly born, I think, out of homophobia and bigotry, not so much out of the game, although the game did play a role because people didn't understand the rules, outwit, outlast, outplay. So they were they were really bothered by the way in which I played. Right. Well, that I think that's because most of the games that we had seen before that They've always, you know, it's always the good guy, right? Who wins. And right. I think that that particular, so Survivor in general, I think kind of spawned a lot of these shows where it became like, you are the survivor, the sole survivor. That's, you do what you have to do to win. And I don't think we've really seen that before. We have, and you're doing it right now. Oh, I love this. So oh, good, good. Yeah. Tell me then. <laughs> she said, isn't it always the good guy who won? I'm a good guy, Kelly. I'm sure. <laughs> I mean, I've met you. I think you're a good guy, but I know that the persona was that you would do whatever it took to win. And wouldn't a football player? True. No, absolutely true. Yeah. So is he? Is he a good a good guy? Well, but you could argue that some sometimes we look at players who we will consider to do anything to win, and we'll call them dirty, or we'll say that the coach is not a good person. I mean, there's a little of that. Only if they cheat, if they play within the rules, and they and they you know tackle him to the ground, and they block every single pass and they knock him out of the way as hard as they possibly can. Everything within the rules. That guy is loud. That guy is, is praised. That guy is followed for being such a great, a good guy. You know, that's, that's the disparity here. People looked and thought this guy is a villain. This what's he doing? Rosie O'Donnell brought us all onto her show and she gave everyone a car and she gave me a box of rice because she didn't like me. (laughs) because of the game. She didn't get it either. Everybody watching initially thought he's just mean and they didn't understand the rules. So was it a character that you're playing or is it strategy or like how, how did that perception flourish? Yeah, no, it's, it's real. It's actually who I am, but I'm bright enough to recognize what the game's rules are and what's required to win the game. More and more people over the 20 years now that the show has continued to air get it and are playing this way. Today, good players use my playbook to be successful. You, They don't really have any choice. That's required to play the game well. Just as if you're a football player and you don't really want to knock somebody over, you might hurt their arm, you're not going to win. Right. <laughs> you know, it's a 
the, the analogy is is really really good. I think between the two of them, and people are only now still kind of getting it. Some players still don't. Some viewers, many viewers, still don't. And so you're right. The perception of who I am is rampant. I mean, that's the main way in which I'm thought of. Right. And, and I think that spilled over into the tax case because from someone watch, watching from home, and you know, I work with with folks who don't pay their taxes all the time. I think that when you saw this play out in the press, you were already perceived as arrogant. Like that was kind yes. of what a lot of people took from the show. And then it seemed kind of the height of arrogance that you would win this money publicly and not yeah. pay tax. I think that exactly. was that narrative was very easy to draw. And I did it. I did it a bunch of times. You said that you reached out to to the service. Sort of what was the transition between making that call and then getting arrested? Like how did that happen? Great question. So that process took almost two years. So my accountant reached out trying to figure out to whom had been paid what. So mm -hmm. how much had been paid to Malaysia? Because we knew they were required to have been paid before we left the island. And then what's the difference between the U.S. tax bracket and the Malaysian tax bracket? How much did we owe? Right. And so those questions, while engaged with the IRS, took nearly two years of me going to my accountant saying, what on earth am I paying? I mean, another bill. What? How is this not resolved? I mean, all my life, I just, the accountant gives me the paperwork, I sign it, and the, and the taxes are done. And this just was going on and on and on. Finally, almost two years later, I think, at the end of 2001, somebody said for the first time something about converting this civil inquiry, which is what this all these questions supposedly were, into a criminal inquiry. Right. And I lost my mind. So for listeners, that sometimes happens when, even when there are not overt allegations of criminal activity, but if there's a substantial underpayment, sometimes the case can be referred for criminal prosecution. That's probably how that happened. First time I'd ever heard the word, never been in trouble before, lost my mind, retained an attorney instantly to explain to me what on earth, how could that word even be used? Why isn't this resolved yet? What's going on with my accountant? And then the two of them worked together for the rest of, I don't even know how long before it was converted to a criminal inquiry, right. the process unfolded and during it, sometime during it, without my attorney ever having kind of gotten my accountant on record, the IRS made a deal with my accountant to protect her. And the result of that was the conviction at some point. Yeah. The result of that was the, I'm going to say wrongful beyond description conviction. <laughs> okay. But yeah, that happens, you know, and I, and I was convicted. They threatened me with 10 counts because I refused to plea on the one count of attempting to evade taxes. Mm -hmm. And I still refused to plea. So they went with the 10 counts. I was acquitted of all of the Everything, bank fraud, wire fraud, mail fraud, charity fraud, all this crap that they made up to taint the jury, but was convicted of the attempting to evade taxes because nobody could follow any of it, even right. me in the courtroom. It was fascinating on one level, but destructive as, as I could possibly describe on another. Sure. So you went, it was 51 months and you served yeah. 
three years initially, right? Around three years? Yeah, a little more, a little more, but yeah. You had an early release, but then you were sent back to prison. This was the discussion I remember you and I having where I was most fascinated, I think, because I'm looking at this as an outsider and I don't understand what happened because I wasn't there, obviously. But then you told me that you were sent back to prison for not amending your tax returns as the judge had ordered. And you told me that you were told that you couldn't amend them because of the ongoing investigation. And as a tax attorney, I actually knew that that part is true, that once a criminal investigation has begun, a taxpayer may not attempt to fix the problem by filing older amended returns or by paying the tax due. So that seemed like an impossibility. You served the time. And then when you got out, they dropped the requirement that you file the the amended return, right? Yeah, I guess uh, dropped. They never enforced it. They never, they couldn't. But yes, exactly as you said, it was the original judge's order that I amend the return and file the taxes owed. Well, when you're under audit, as you know, you can't. Mm -hmm. And there was no way that original judge could ever have imagined that that audit would still be going on all those years. I did the full 51 months. Okay. So it wasn't, I was, I was let out early. I w- I did that whole 51 months. I was sent back because of what they called a probation violation. The probation violation added more time because of uh, not having complied with that judge's order, which was not possible for me to legally comply. On the surface, it looked like you just weren't complying. And it's interesting because, and this kind of goes back to our discussion a a little bit earlier, is that you seemed in public to be the kind of person who didn't really care (laughs) what people thought about you. But on some level, this had to bother you. If you thought you were right, and that's not what was being reported, I heard the, the initial arguments for why you, you felt that the conviction wasn't fair. But I right. had not heard this part until like your, your explanation of what you had been told, which makes sense to me, until we had chatted. It had to bother you at some point that this lingered, right? Like in the beginning, if you come back and you're like, eh, yeah, I'm the villain, it is what it is. And then you go to jail, which nobody yeah. wants to do. <laughs> and then you get out and you're like, okay, I'm done. And then they're like, no, you're not. And yeah. then you have to go back. And it just keeps happening. That had to bother you. Like it had to bother you that things weren't going back to way the way you thought they might. Well, it all bothers me. It's not that it doesn't bother me when people misrepresent me, et cetera. All of us want to be understood. Sure. But early in life, as a gay guy growing up, I learned that I wasn't going to be understood by many, many people. And this yearning to be understood, as strong as it might be in me uh, and others, isn't ever going to be something I can rely on being fulfilled. So I learned to deal with it. It's not that I didn't care what people thought. It's just I learned to deal with it. And yes, it does fit the arrogant picture mm-hmm. for me to be perceived as, hey, I'm just not going to pay it. I'm done with my time and I'm not going to pay it. I'm not going to, I don't owe it. The truth is, I it's a long conversation, but it was re- those taxes were required to have been paid by CBS and Mark Burnett before we left the island. Okay. So it wasn't owed by me. We they were required to have been paid 
before I even came home, before I filed the next year, before any of that. And so it was their responsibility to correct whatever had happened. I wasn't even assessed to have owed taxes until years after I was out of prison, 10 years later, when it still had not been paid to Malaysia, I was assessed the tax. So I was sent to prison without having been assessed to owe anything. And then I was sent back because I didn't amend when it wasn't possible for me to amend. Right. Am I confusing people? Well, taxes are always confusing. Yeah. Well, there's, I mean, I think one of the things that it's hard to understand. And I, and I, and this is where, you know, and I share the same confusion is that I think there's a lot of moving parts and this was something new. I mean, since this time, and I've talked to you about this because I've covered, I've covered a lot of reality show folks that have been charged with either tax evasion or tax fraud. I think the perception is that you have a lot of money that you're paid well and that you just don't think you owe. And I think that especially you, because you were the first person to publicly win this kind of money on this kind of show. Yeah. I think there was just an idea that you were walking around with this money and refusing to pay. I think that's what is confusing. And then I think the, you know, and you, you and I've talked about this too, is that at some point there's no money left to pay. And your ability to work was actually restricted. I know that the um, your passport was held for a while, and I it, it was you couldn't participate in one of the Survivor, I think All Star Challengers or something, because you couldn't go abroad. Or was that Amazing Race? It was something. I remember we were talking about the fact that you couldn't go anywhere to work. Yeah, it's worse than that. I had already completed my time in prison, and prosecutors still withheld the passport because of probation or whatever else. Even though what probation is supposed to be when you're done with your sentence is support for for you to get reemployed, to get back into that's the meaning of probation. That's what right. you're supposed to be doing. And they twice for heroes versus villains and for Redemption Island, I think it was. I forget. I was invited back and prosecutors withheld my passport preventing me from going. And, and you also didn't talk about this a lot, I know, um, after your release. And I know that at least one of the reasons was that you had granted a um, an interview with NBC. Well, I think you were in house arrest and you were arrested for violating prison media access rules. And you had said that your attorney got permission and NBC agreed that they had sought permission. Yeah. But the Bureau of Prisons argued that the permission was for one interviewer, not three. And um, right. you said, so you said that the permission said NBC, not a specific interviewer. Do you remember the outcome of that? Because I, uh, that I was oh, a I little, do. yeah, so what happened? So they required me to get permission to talk to anyone, to do any kind of interview. So over a period of a month or two, NBC pursued this permission. Right. And we got permission for me to do one interview at my home. I'm I'm out now. I'm out of prison. I'm in, on house arrest and whatever it's called. And I'm I'm in my yard and I'm doing the interview. And so there's a chair that I'm sitting in and I sat in that chair and NBC had permission to interview me. Mm-hmm. NBC had Matt Lauer sit in the chair first. Then right. they had Tony Potts of Access Hollywood. And then they had the local news guy here from the NBC sh- uh, channel here mm-hmm. in the other chair. 
I sat in my chair. I never moved from my chair. I answered their questions and they left. And when it aired, they came here, put me in leg in my underwear, leg irons, uh, weights, chains, uh, handcuffs, and dragged me back to prison. And how long was that? That was to finish out the 51 months that would have been finished out on um, uh, house arrest. So gotcha. I don't know how many more, 10 months or I don't know. It was quite a while. The timing on this is, I think, just kind of fascinating because at the time, we didn't see a lot of public white collar crimes. There were occasional, you know, there were the Idrons, you know, there yeah. were there were a couple, but you didn't see people being arrested for many financial crimes, especially federally. I mean, just publicly we did. And we knew it was happening. I'm not, I don't want to imply that it wasn't happening because it absolutely was happening, but we weren't watching it. And we watched right. this happen. Like we watched this on TV. We watched this happen. Yeah. And it's kind of an interesting topic now because now we're seeing it again. We're seeing these white collar criminal trials with these heavier sentences. And we're also seeing accusations of retaliation. And this is something that you have said, like you felt like this was targeted. And I know that um, we've seen this like with uh, Michael Cohen, that he said that he was being punished, not because of specific violations, but because of what he knew and what he wanted to talk about. And he was actually successful with his suit. Do you see parallels between those things or how we treat white collar criminals generally? Or do you do you see kind of themes that are recurring in terms of how we treat people accused of financial crimes? Because to, to be clear, the sentence for yours was as long as some people get or longer than some people get for assault. For way worse, uh, 51 months. Right. And then going back again. But I do see parallels and more. What I think is more important than the parallels between what is going on now in the sentencing is the disparity, the inequities that are obvious. So Mm -hmm. those 51 months, for example, that I got because I couldn't, I wasn't powerful enough to represent myself in a way that helped people understand the absurdity of my having been convicted. Mm -hmm. Here, let's take Manafort or or, uh, Michael, any of those people, the things that they were charged with, the things that were proven beyond a reasonable doubt for them were egregious beyond what most people could comprehend. Millions and millions and millions of dollars with Manafort over years of false tax returns and all kinds of things. And he and others get light sentences because of their power and influence Mm -hmm. compared with what I got. So why? You know, it's because when you are more powerful, you are treated less harshly. So yes, there are parallels in which some people are targeted like I was. Mm -hmm. But if we look even more deeply into some of the public stuff now, you can see how the people in those positions of power those positions of influence, access to the president, et cetera, are getting treated with kid gloves. Shouldn't you who have more authority, more power, more experience, more, shouldn't you be more responsible, not less? That's the way I look at it. Right. Well, speaking of power, like you mentioned CBS early on, do you know if they've changed the way that they compensate or report? I do. They immediately, after our issues with the, the, the law came to, to fruition, changed the contract. 
So the contract, the wording, everything else about when the taxes were due and by whom, that was all changed. I don't know if they've changed anything about the way they pay us. I don't think they withhold taxes or anything like that, which might have made all of this easier. Right. You were not treated as an employee. No, no, no. But you know, legally, through IRS terms, we were. Well, New York, it's very interesting because a lot of a lot of uh, reality show competitions, I think they would argue that they are not employees. I think kind of in, in your case, when you look at, you know, usually the IRS wants to say, do you have control over over these folks? Right. Your argument is that you they had all the control. So my accountant and my attorney uh, made that argument. They were like, listen, take the IRS list of bullet points uh, in determining whether or not these people should be considered employees or otherwise. And every single one of them of those bullet points fit. And we were controlled by that company more than anybody could be controlled our entire 24-hour period, whether working or not. We were required to be in a certain space. We were required to do specific things, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we should have been treated as employees. And I know that the the layperson may think, oh, that's, listen to him, trying to make excuses. And he was on a game show. He wasn't an employee. No, I get all that. I'm just talking about the, the actual requirements that the IRS has in place should have caused CBS to treat us technically, uh, legally in paperwork as employees. I I understand what we were and what we did, but the IRS has requirements and they weren't followed. Well, and it's it's kind of, I guess, equivalent to the gig economy. Um, You know, you see this now with with Uber or Lyft or um, even FedEx, where they, you know, you can argue that someone has a gig or or do they, you know, have a a job. And, And it's interesting to see how different people are treated because I have since since your sentence, I have actually represented folks who have been in similar positions. And it, it is interesting how these criteria change from network to network and from show to show. Do you know, and I don't know this, so this is kind of showing my ignorance. Do does um Survivor compensate anyone who's not the winner? Oh yeah. All okay. of them. Oh, so you get you get paid for your time for being there. The first person voted off gets twenty five hundred. That's after three days, and then all the way up. So the winner gets a million. Second place is like eighty five thousand. Oh no, a hundred thousand. Okay. Third place is eighty five, seventy, et cetera. Everyone gets a nice chunk. Nice. And so you know, after this happened, you actually still maintained a relationship of some sort with with Survivor because you've been on a few times. Is that right? Some sort. It really okay. did shift drastically. So I had Mark Burnett's personal cell phone. We chatted. We we talked. And when 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 I was going to be somewhere, we'd meet and and et cetera. Out on the island, uh, you know, he'd promised we're family for life. All this other stuff, crazy stuff. The right. day we called, looking for further information from the IRS. The accountant also started to reach out to CBS Accounting trying to get information and was prevented from talking to CBS Accounting. And Mark Burnett changed his number or removed or blocked my number, whatever it was. And so we never spoke again. Clearly, their attorneys, Burnett's and CBS's, were advising distance between us. And so they left us to kind of hang in the wind instead of dealing with what had happened. What it turns out is he brought us in by having bribed a Malaysian official 
as tourists instead of what how we should have come in. It doesn't change the tax obligation, right? But it takes the focus off of us. So they weren't looking for for CBS to have paid anything. Well, and again, I think a lot of this was new and people didn't. Yeah, yeah didn't know. Obviously, you can't go through an experience like that and and not be angry. But do, like, has it made you? think of reality television differently as it made you think about the entertainment industry differently. You weren't an entertainer before this. No, you were not no, like I nowadays. I think people that, you know, they see some of these shows and these are kids who kind of, when they're 18, this is what they want to be, right? They, yeah, they were yeah, YouTubers yeah. that want to be on reality TV, but that wasn't you. You had like a real job and you weren't, you weren't uh, training at home to, to be, you know, the, the next survivor in the beginning. Corporate trainer for 15 years, incredible reputation, lots of good work history, et cetera. Yeah, no, it wasn't me. And I had no interest in the fame associated with having been on one of these shows because we were the first on any major network television. Survivor, the original show, was the first one on ABC, CBS, NBC, those kinds of things. No, that wasn't why I was there. I wanted the money. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the honest answer. Yeah. But and but before before all of this, before Survivor, before prison, in addition to the corporate trainer, like you've done things that a lot of us would consider honorable. Like you served time in the military. I was in the army. I went to West Point. I adopted my son. I traveled the world. I did all kinds of you know really wonderful things. I was a big brother. You know the Big Brother organization. Right. Yeah. No, life was good. Life was normal, and I was. I would say respected. I was respected professionally. I had respect as a person. And that's what that shift, that perception you've talked about and how, how I was perceived on the show is something I had to wrestle with and learn to make a choice about how to respond, how to react, how to take it. Right. It, it was different. It was new for me. Yeah. And I, I was, cause I was actually going to say like, despite all of this, a few years ago, like despite your the fact that in the grand scheme of your life, Survivor was not a very long time wise, a long part that, you know, TV Guide actually included you in its list of the 60 nastiest villains of all time. But do you have regrets about it? Like, I know it's it's probably a loaded question because I understand yeah. that we all do things like that were both. You can look at something and say, well, yeah, that was kind of a crappy moment. But had it not happened, maybe I wouldn't have met this person. So I understand that no one moment is all good or all bad, but do you have mostly regrets or mostly not regrets? Like, how do you want to be remembered and what did you take from all of this? So I can't care about how I'm going to be remembered. I already know who I am, what I did, what I'm proud of, et cetera. I'm really, really proud of how I played that game. Mm -hmm. Do I regret having played it? No, I, I, I don't. I regret who we are as human beings and how the world has and continues to treat one another, treat people the way it does. So I guess what's tattooed on my back, seek truth, question everything has mm -hmm. become a mantra. And, and I try to encourage people to, to think more critically and to be more skeptical in general about almost everything. And that leads to open-mindedness, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So for me, this kind of way of interacting in the world, wanting people to learn, to, to be open, to grow, is what this has inspired. And I 
choose, I guess, to look at that positively. So I don't regret having done it or what's come of it. I know that I was in the right. I know, and people, this is the arrogance people talk about. Mm-hmm. I know I didn't do anything wrong. And people just say, you never do anything wrong. You're always saying this and they did that. And, and, and I'm more thoughtful than that. I've been introspective since I was a very young child when my brother was killed. I mean, I, I, I really think things through. And if there were things that I did that were inappropriate or should have been done differently, or I'm, I'm happy, happy to learn about them, to, to admit them, to, have, to, to say that I should have and shift. But in this case, there, there really weren't. I, did, I played the game extraordinarily well. I'm proud of how I played it. After it was over, I had an accountant, I got an attorney, I did what was supposed to have been done to try and deal with the taxes as I had my entire life well in the way that they're supposed to be dealt with. And unfortunately, it, it doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. It's, there's, there are many, many more powerful influences involved. And if somebody wants to make an example of you because of how you're perceived, that's the world in which we live. And I know that um, one of the things I had talked about with Jeff Grant uh, earlier on in the podcast in a, a couple episodes back is he he also went to prison for uh, white collar crime and he, you know he he did his time and he came out and and he looks at the world a little differently now. Does does it bother you? And I I'm including myself in this category. Does it bother you that the thing that people still talk about is the tax piece after you've done your time? Well, it's all, it's all people know, and it's a big piece of, of what people remember, but it allows me to talk about things like the guy I met in prison. I spent years in prison, more than anyone in U.S. history for, what, for the amounts that they claimed. Mm-hmm. Suck on that for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> Leona Helmsley. I mean, all these people. Anyway, but I met a guy in prison, for example, who had a joint in his pocket when he was 16 and got a record. And then in, at 19, he got arrested for taking pot from Washington, D.C. to Oregon, two pounds. Mm-hmm. And they gave him 25 years. Wow. Yeah. I mean, 25 years. And he was there when I was there and his mother died and they wouldn't let her go to the funeral. And one of his sons ended up in prison and the other one, you know, was raised without him. And he's out now and he's just finished probation and what a life. And he got those 25 years because he's black. And that's it. Mm-hmm. You know, there isn't a white person alive who would get 25 years for those crimes, having had a joint and then driving two pounds from one place to another. It just wouldn't happen. And, and that taught me a lot about just how badly we treat one another and particularly others, in quotes, those mm-hmm. different from ourselves and whoever that at the time, majority happens to be so white heterosexuals in America. Right. Although certainly, I would say that the, there's been a shift in culture since you were on Survivor, especially about the way that we view like same-sex couples. And, you know, obviously, we're, we're clearly not getting there yet on people of color. But I do think, you know, there were not the representations of same-sex couples, gay people, when you were on Survivor, we really, no. you know, now it's, you know, how many years of Will and Grace and and how many other shows have we seen? But it wasn't the case when you were on. Do you think that you would be treated differently 
if you had been on Survivor in 2020 instead of uh, back in 2000, was it 2001? Oh, I know I would have. I've been, I would have been treated differently if I lived in anywhere else. California, for example, that nobody would ever have ever even considered prosecuting for this this absurdity, you know, this this what happened with the taxes on the million thing when I'm the one who was trying to figure out how to pay them. Mm-hmm. It just wouldn't have, wouldn't have occurred. But yes, there is a dis- a difference. We are we are moving in 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 the right direction, but we're not there. So people refer to this often as uh, you know, what about Will and Grace and what about these shows and the representations? They're there, Kelly, but the the result guys, the underlying kind of feelings are still quite negative, quite Mm -hmm. other. And the repercussions of those are more real than I'd ever known in my lifetime. I thought loving myself was enough. And then I realized it does matter what others think of you. It does matter how you're perceived and it still does. And so it's not just, you know, black and brown people and gay people too, still who are who are less than, who are treated as very, very differently, negatively, in comparison with how the majority is treated. Do you do any kind of advocacy work now, or are you more, are you public with respect to these kinds of ideas that you have, or do you worry that you'll just be the guy who went to prison for taxes? Well, I, I feel like that's what I will be, but that isn't who I am. So sure. the answer to your question is yes, I do work with groups. I can't even tell you who really, because that, that there are many, particularly gay organizations, larger high profile gay organizations that don't want the association because mm-hmm. of the perception of the tax evasion, the negativity, et cetera. Right. But there are others like the Innocence Project, Brian Stevenson, what an amazing human being and his project that I've reached out to and anything that I could do, I would do. I don't know that I'm in a position to do much, but right. at times the name recognition after all these years with me is still there. And so it does help raise money for, for different charities. And there are events and autograph signings and meet and greets that I do attend that raise money for for meaningful causes. And right. that is fulfilling. That is really, really a powerful, positive side effect, if you will, of having been on this silly show. Are you tired of the name recognition or like, do you just want to hang out in Rhode Island and look for clams and not be bothered <laughs> or do, or, yeah. or do you miss it? Or do you miss? How did you know I look for spot? clams? That's how <laughs> Instead of a paper route, that's how I made money. Was yeah, no, I remember you telling me that when, when I met <laughs> no, you, funny. about how you used to dive for the, cl- yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's wonderful. I didn't want the name recognition initially. I wasn't seeking. So am I tired of it? Um, I guess I can't even say no to that because it affords me this, this feeling of joy when I can contribute in the way that I do. So Mm -hmm. I'm frustrated that I can't contribute more. I think my kind of name, my, the public profile, whatever, were it positive, I'd be able to do more. So I'm frustrated that it isn't as helpful as it could be, because I think I would be one to use my fame for good. Would you go on another reality show? Oh, sure. You know, it's all about money for me. Somebody just make an (laughs) offer and I'll do it. <laughs> Are you working otherwise? I mean, is it hard to find work because of uh, the connotations? 
Well, you know, that's a really, really interesting story because there are things that I choose not to talk about Mm -hmm. that with respect to the, with the IRS, they did some really illegal things that have lingered. Uh, It wasn't legal of them to bring my family members and lean their properties. And and there are lots of things that have lingered for years and have been prevented really from doing some things. Um, Boy, can I be detailed than that? I get that you can't talk about everything. I was just wondering if there was some, it's something that I have talked about with folks who have uh, served time before about whether or not it's hard to do the the same thing. So for example, in Jeff's case, I mentioned Jeff Grant earlier, he was a lawyer, he was disbarred. So he's no longer a lawyer. Um, He became a priest and um, now works with white collar criminals. So, you know, obviously Sometimes you have to make a lifestyle shift. Sometimes it works out for you and sometimes it doesn't. And I know in, in Jeff's case it has, but it doesn't always. Like sometimes people want their old lives back. And I know yeah. you can't have that. And and I was just wondering, like, you know, how much the, is that the kind of thing that keeps you up at night? Or are you just like, you know what, it is what it is and I'm gonna move on? Yeah, you're you're really right. You can't have that. And and no, it doesn't keep me up at night. I I'm lucky in in some ways, which is odd for me to say, I think, because I had always lived my life looking to shake things up a little. So Mm -hmm. I was a corporate trainer uh, and consultant for about 15 years, but I did many, many different interesting things before that. And I'm doing many, many interesting different things thereafter. Right. So it's not that I yearn to be that corporate trainer and uh, have that same you know, schedule and life and stress associated with travel and speaking and all of that. So no, I don't mind where I am now. Mm-hmm. If you were able to control the narrative, like a hundred percent, like without yeah. any preconceived notions, if somebody had not heard the first, whatever, 50 minutes of the presentation and, and had no clue who you were or what you had done, what would be the thing that you would want them to know about you? Like if you could control the narrative 100%, what would you want people to know? Oh my gosh. I guess I would say, hey, hi, I'm Richard Hatch. I won a really fascinating social experiment show in 2000. And since then, I've had opportunities to really impact the world positively. And I've enjoyed every minute of it. I love who we are as human beings, and I'm fascinated by the way in which we interact with one another, and I'm dedicated to improving how we treat one another. That's amazing. Well, thank you so (laughs) much for your time. If you wanted people, and you may not, if you wanted people to find you on social or wherever, where should they look? And if you don't want them to, you can just say, I'm good. Oh, I'm on, I'm on pretty much everything. I think I, I'm most vocal mm-hmm. on Twitter I love at Twitter. Hatch Richard. Yeah. I'm, I'm most vocal there. And, and so people will um, reach out or say things, or there'll be things that I have to respond to because of how absurd I think they are, but you can find me on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, but I don't even think I've ever posted on Instagram. I'm just on it. So I don't know. I'll put the but, link to uh, Twitter and the show notes if people want to, want to follow super. you. I love Twitter. I find it really fascinating. I kind of think that the idea that your amount of characters is limited, I think makes you think more carefully about what you say. 
Um, as opposed to like this format where I can just ramble, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it makes yeah. me, you have to learn to be a little succinct. I think it's a good thing. Well, I think some, some of us get that. Well, this is true. <laughs> some Twitter, some folks some have some don't. issues with Twitter, clearly. <laughs> yes. Uh, not only the, the brevity, but the caps lock. So, uh, yeah. Well, thank you so much again for coming on and sharing your story. It's always really interesting to talk to you. And, and I really appreciate your time. I know you're busy. So thank no, you. Thank you for thinking of me. I appreciate that. Thanks, Kelly. Awesome. Thanks. And that will do it for this episode. You can find me on Twitter and Facebook at Tax Girl, and you can sign up for my free newsletter at taxgirl.com. Thanks for listening, because paying taxes is painful, but hearing about them doesn't have to be.